Most people have heard of phytoestrogens, but did you know there are beneficial phytoandrogens that mimic and support testosterone and more? The top source of these is pine pollen. If you're looking for 100% natural hormonal support for men and women, you've got to try this. Right now, Lost Empire Herbs' best-selling pine pollen is available for one penny plus shipping and handling. Go to GeniusPollen.com to find out more and grab yourself a bag today. No hidden charges, no trial offer, no shenanigans. Just a low-cost way to try Lost Empire Herbs' top product for next to nothing. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Robert Westerfield. He's a senior public service associate. He's interested in working on consumer fruits and vegetables. He works at the University of Georgia. He's actually a a consumer horticulturist. We're going to talk about uh, his work. So thanks for coming, Bob. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. I don't know, have you been growing things and tending the plants your whole life, or is this more of a recent thing in your life? No, good gracious, no. I've actually probably been gardening for over 40-something years. I've worked for the University of Georgia almost 35 years now, and I'm actually the fruit and vegetable specialist, or one of them for the state. And so my main job is I actually trial vegetables. I, I try different varieties to see how well they work in the state of Georgia. You know, if they're good varieties, then we'll send them up to the seed, different seed companies and catalogs our suggestions, and then eventually you know, they may show up for sale to consumers, to farmers, and so forth. I also work with our county personnel, which are called county agents. We've got agents in all the, all the counties. And then what I do is I make field visits. I go out to a lot of the small farm operations, kind of the mom and pop farms, organic farms, troubleshoot for them, help them you know, to, to try to do a little bit better job of growing. Okay, interesting. So you do uh, some consulting with individual farms. And then for the university, you're helping to find fruits and vegetables that'll grow in Georgia's climate. Right. And, and I mean, it's all part of the same job. So, you know, as a faculty member for UGA, we're usually expected to have a, you know, a research type initiative or appointment. And for me, that's applied research. So I work with a lot of the companies, particularly sweet corn varieties. Last couple of years, I have trialed numerous different sweet corn varieties in the state to see which ones would work out the best, you know, which ones didn't have as much problem with insects, which ones stored the longest and that kind of thing. So do that. But then on a continuous basis, I'm answering emails. Also write a lot of publications. I've got probably 150 publications with the University of Georgia on different topics, you know, different things about fruit gardening, vegetable gardening, and so forth. Yeah, that's really, really cool. Do you grow things indoors? Do you use uh, hydroponics or is it all outdoors with soil? Yeah, so that's a great question. You know, hydroponics has not really taken off very much in our state yet. Certainly, if you go south of us in the Florida, it's kind of big. And there's a few growers here, but primarily what I'm doing is outdoor systems. We certainly have a greenhouse that we uh, have at UGA and that, you know, I will start young vegetables in there. And then, of course, they'll be transferred out into the field. Now, what we do uh, a lot of around here is we trial a lot of what's called high, dunk, high, high tunnel production. High tunnel, if you will, is sort of like a greenhouse, but it doesn't have heating and air. It's basically just the structure 
usually it's sort of made out of metal hoops with uh, plastic over it. And what that does, that allows farmers to get in there and get their crop started earlier in the spring when our soils are still too cool. So it's sort of a way of kind of, uh, you know, tricking the season and extending it one way or the other. But it also helps a little bit in prevention of disease and some of the insects. So what are some of the nuances of uh, greenhouse growing? What, what should people know that, uh, you know, is important to know about greenhouses? Are they primarily good for just starting fruits and vegetables? Or if you're going to take them all the way, you know, what's important about greenhouse growing versus outside? Yeah, so um, the high tunnels are, the high tunnels I spoke of are, are basically like greenhouses, but that their sides come open, allow air in and so forth. So the biggest thing, if you're going to use a total enclosed structure, say like a greenhouse, which may be made out of, you know, glass, plastic. If you're growing, growing the solanaceous crops and solanaceous are things like tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, um, as long as there's some movement in there, a little air movement or whatever with a fan, they'll actually pollinate themselves and they can produce a vegetable. Most of your, yeah, your cucurbit crops, and that would be things like you think of squash, cucumbers, cantaloupe and, and, and such, they have got to have pollinators and pollinators typically are going to be insects. So, you know, if you've got a sort of a sterile environment in a greenhouse and no, you know, honeybees or other pollinators flying around, you're not going to get much of a crop because it's not being pollinated from insects. That's one thing you have to look for. So some of the curcurbic vegetables and fruits, you can't grow them year round because the pollinators won't be around unless you had them, I guess, hanging out in the greenhouse in a temperature controlled environment, right? Yeah, and there's, there's a way to do it, and, and it is done. So one thing is, and it's not done on a huge basis, but some growers will actually put bumblebees inside of the high tunnel or the greenhouse and allow them to live in the, in the greenhouse or the high tunnel, and they're going to go around each day and pollinate the vegetables. The other way to do it, and we've done this before, is to pollinate them artificially. You know, you're, when it comes to any of the squash varieties, the cucurbits, you're going to have several male blooms, and then you'll have the female bloom. The female bloom is the thing that's going to turn into the vegetable. Well, transferring the pollen from the male to the female is what's the key. You can do that with a Q-tip. You can break off the male blooms and swirl them inside the female blooms, and that will actually act as an insect pollinating. So there are ways to get around it, but you know, from a large scale, it would be kind of labor-intensive. Mm. What about, uh, you know, having, like you, you said, like a high tunnel, but opening the, um, you know, the windows, not only for air, but for pollinators, will they come in or they won't know? Yes, they will. Um, certainly that's the way it is done and they will come in. What we've been working on lately is something called exclusion tunnels, because not only will the pollinators come into everything from, you know, your tomatoes to your peppers, or if you try to grow squash or something in there. Obviously, not only the good guys make it in, but the bad guys can make it in as well. Here in the state of Georgia, you know, we've got a, a very warm climate, so we, we battle a lot of disease and insects. Working with exclusion tunnels is a way of doing the high tunnels that instead of just having plastic over the whole thing, we actually use it's sort of a shade cloth netting on the sides and, and the front and the back of it, like the entrances. What it does, it allows some of the pollinators to make it through, but the larger more damaging insects can't fly through. So it's something that's sort of still in the works. We're kind of been experimenting with that. But yeah, opening up, you know, to get pollinators in is important, but also remember, you know, the, the bad guys can make it in there as well. Yeah. Well, when you grow plants inside any enclosed structure, though, they're not going to be getting, I would guess, UVA, UVB, UVC, maybe some certain parts of sunlight. 
So how does that affect them? Like the nutritional profile or, or otherwise, if stuff's grown in the greenhouse or, you know, if it's grown under LEDs, I don't know if you know that difference there, but at least in a greenhouse versus just out in direct sun, what happens? Yeah, so our greenhouses are all going to be in natural sunlight. They're glass or, you know, a very clear plastic. So they're getting all the sunlight they really need. So they're they're getting everything really they would get, you know, outside of the greenhouse if they were growing. I thought, I thought glass blocks certain uh, UV rays. It might block some, but we still get plenty of it in. And you know, like I said, for the most part, our greenhouse production is going to be to start the plants. And when you're starting, say, young seeds of tomatoes or peppers or whatever, you really don't want intense sunlight on those. Having a little bit of that breakup from the covering, the plastic, the glass, really is essential to get you know good germination and no stress on those seedlings until they're ready to get out. Then when you get ready to plant, say, those vegetables in the field, you just don't go from the greenhouse out into the field. You've got to acclimate them. And you're acclimating them to sort of the full sunlight, if you will, and also the temperature differentiation. So by that, what we'll normally do is we'll take trays outside for a couple hours and they get brought back in again. And you'll do that for a few days. You know, it's kind of like if you know you landed up in whatever, northern Canada, you know, and it's 20 degrees below zero. It takes you a few days to sort to get used to that. That's what we're doing with these vegetables. We're kind of kind of getting them used to the new environment. Most supplements are taken on faith and can take weeks or months to have an effect. Even supplements backed by scientific studies may or may not deliver those same benefits to you. But what if you could feel the results of what you took within just a few days? Lost Empire Herbs offers the highest quality, wild-harvested, non-irradiated pine pollen, and that can dramatically impact your hormones fast. Right now, you can grab it for one cent plus shipping and handling at GeniusPollen.com. Okay, so you're saying that you, it's better to start the plants you know, in the greenhouse and then you put them out in the sun, but you have to acclimate them. So what does the acclimation process look like? Yeah, so it's really just a couple of days. It's, it's basically introducing. And when I say, you, you know, you should start the vegetables in the greenhouse, it's only for some vegetables. Some vegetables actually direct seeding right into the field is perfectly fine. In fact, it's probably even better. Uh, we mentioned the cucurbit crops earlier. That's talking about, you know, winter squash, summer squash, um, cucumbers, pumpkins, to name a few. Those do much better when you start them right in the soil of your garden, your raised bed, your whatever, from a seed rather than starting them as a transplant. So once you do, let's say I grow, you know, some plants, I get them to seedling stage and they're, you know, they're, they're sprouting and all that. When, at what point would I transfer them outside? And then what do I do to protect them outside so they can literally take root and start to grow? Okay. Yeah, that's right. And I'm not sure how much you heard of this, but um, like I said, you're, there are some things like the cucurbits we talked about, certainly sweet corn, okra, if you're familiar with, you're better off just to direct seed those right outside and don't start them indoors. However, the solanaceous we talked about, tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, along with maybe a few of the winter crop, when you, right now we're growing in the greenhouse broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, those do much better when started as a seedling, you know, in the greenhouse when it's in a protected environment. To answer your question, you know, you, it's normally going to take anywhere from about five to seven weeks to have a seed from going into the greenhouse soil ready for transplant into the garden. So you got to plan on that amount of time to get it ready. You can keep checking your plants when they're finally fully rooted, in other words, you can lift a little plant out of the planter tray and you see it's rooted out completely, then it's getting very close to being able to be planted. Then what you'll do is, again, you'll take those trays outside for a couple of hours if you can, 
let them acclimate to the sunlight, to the outdoor temperature, then bring them back in again. Ideally, if you can do that for three or four days, a little bit of a pain in the neck, but if you can do that, they'll be better conditioned and hardened off for the field. And then that way, when you go to plant them, let's just say four or five days down the road in the field, um, they sort of have already been in that environment. And then the key then is going to be water. Um, a lot of people will plant seeds, vegetables, and then they'll make them a little water to start with. And then they said, well, they'll be on their own. They are literally at your mercy. So you've got to make sure you water them frequently to start with to get those roots to begin to expand. You can certainly throttle back on irrigation, you know, as they begin to kind of flourish and take off. But, you know, really watching the water management early on after you planted that transplant is going to be one of the keys. I'm, I'm sure it depends on the plants, but what are some yes. general recommendations for yeah. So, um, you know, as far as irrigation frequency and how much and so forth, just a couple of points. It's really going to depend, first of all, on the type of soil that you have. Uh, if you're familiar with raised beds, which a lot of people will grow in around here, you know, they'll take, you know, wood and build raised beds, put six or seven inches of soil up in there. That's a great way to grow vegetables, but they also drain very rapidly. You may have to water those raised beds every three, maybe four days. In soils, particularly in Georgia and maybe parts of uh, Texas and other areas of the country, you've got a lot more clay in the soil. They will retain moisture. So that being said, you know, one to two inches of water per week might be all those plants need. And like you said, some are more um, water thirsty than others, but most vegetables are going to thrive on at least one to two inches of water per week. The real key is, again, starting those plants off, getting them established. And then when they get close to fruiting, you definitely want to make sure they have plenty of water so that they can fill out and come basically to maturity for harvest. Oh, so as they get close to, so when, when they produce flowers, is that when you start to amp up the watering or only when they start to produce the fruits themselves or the vegetables? Not necessarily when they're flowering, but when that flower has pollinated and begins to develop into a vegetable. For instance, you know, take example, a cucumber, you know, it'll be a bunch of blooms on there. Since it's a cucurbit, you're going to have male and female blooms. The way you tell the difference for the listeners is, you know, the, the female bloom will actually have a what looks like a very tiny cucumber right behind the bloom. That's the oval. That's the female reproductive part. When she is pollinated from the male blooms, and usually that's going to be insects transferring that pollen, she'll begin to swell up. And that little structure behind that flower will become your next cucumber. When you see that start to swell up like that, yeah, you certainly don't want to let them get too dry. You don't want to saturate them and keep them in, you know, a, a swampy soup, but you want to keep the, the soil sort of evenly, lightly moist so that they have plenty of irrigation. Another problem with cucumbers, if you, you let them kind of grow and then you don't water them and they get real dry, they'll get bitter on you. And that's a real common problem we see sometimes. People say, well, I grew cucumbers, but they were bitter they probably let them get a little bit too dry during that process from the time they pollinated to the time they're ready to harvest. Okay. How do you tell if you're overwatering or underwatering before it's too late? Yeah. So one telltale sign, it looks a lot like, and it actually is, um, if you start seeing your plants particularly turn yellow on the bottom of the leaves first, that is a sign of nitrogen deficiency. But nitrogen deficiency and nitrogen is what actually greens up and pushes a plant to grow. It, sometimes nitrogen deficiency can come from when the soil is too wet. There may be plenty of fertilizer nitrogen out there, but the roots themselves shut down. And all of a sudden now the plant can't pull in that nitrogen. 
So if you're, if you're seeing nitrogen, uh, you know, lower leaves turning yellow, nitrogen deficiency, and you said, heck, I know I put plenty of fertilizer out here, it might be that they're overwatering. Those roots are non-functioning. Other thing is you'll see the tips of the leaves, either overwatering or underwatering, the margins or the outside portion of the vegetable leaves will normally begin to turn brown. So it'll almost be like a, not really a halo, but an outer marginal brown ring around the tips of the leaves. And that's true of anything if we're talking about ornamentals, houseplants, or vegetables. And that's a telltale sign that something with the water is off. Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the uh, you know the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Oh, it doesn't necessarily mean it's too much or too little, but what what else would be off of the water? You know, it definitely could be something with the water management or, you know, like right now I'm looking outside and we're getting a good rain come in. I can't control that. Um, there are other physiological factors that can come in from, you know, drought and or, you know, lack of water or sometimes too much. Vegetables are notorious problematic vegetable uh, plants. Um, you know, if suddenly it's been pretty dry and they get a tremendous rainstorm in or you turn the irrigation on and say you forget to shut it off and it goes too long. A lot of times those tomatoes will just keep sucking up that water and the fruit itself will split. And that's what we call fruit cracking. And I'm sure you've seen tomatoes before up at the top there where they connect to the stem. They'll have these long concentric rings around them where they split open. Basically, there's no more places for the water to go. So it just breaks the skin open of the tomato. So that's just huh. one, you know, that'd be another indicator that, hey, you know, we probably got too much water in here too suddenly. So there, you know, I've seen cracks. Kind of that- yeah, I've seen vertical cracks with the tomato kind of, or whatever fruit splits vertically, but I haven't seen these, these ring ones. Yeah. So the, you, have you seen the other ones? Yeah. Um, yeah. The vertical cracks, and that could be a number of things that could even be what's called cat facing. Cat facing is a physiological phenomena where sometimes the bloom does not get completely pollinated and it does not fully form up the fruit. So you get either funky shaped fruit or you'll see a big split in it. You know, there are a lot of different things that can affect that fruit. Hmm. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, there's lots of factors. How hard is it to diagnose when something's going wrong with, with the plants you're growing? Is that like a whole art in itself or <laughs> well, just a few things to know? Yeah. You know, there's, there's certainly a number of good publications and websites online that can certainly help you. Um, you know, we've got good publications at UGA that's got pictures of how to diagnose things. I mean, for me, doing it for 35 years, I walk into a field. I'm not saying I'm going to know it immediately, but normally if there's a fairly obvious problem, I'm going to recognize it. because You know how it is. You've seen it forever. So there it is. Um, but it takes a lot of investigative work sometimes. Sometimes I have to run soil tests. I've got to see where the pH of the soil is. That's very important. That could be the culprit right there sometimes on a lot of issues. Sometimes I don't see the insect damage. I see the damage that occur, but I don't see the insect itself. So I have to kind of dig further. But 
there are, you know, I think nowadays with the, with the internet, this blog perhaps, and other things, there's a lot of tools out there that, you know, either the homeowner or the farmer did not have in the past. And also I know Texas has got a fantastic, you know, extension service as well. Um, just using the local county extension agents to come out. They're sort of, the, they're the eyes of the specialist. I'm a specialist. And so the county agents are the people that go out to the field. They meet, you know, with the homeowners, the farmers, they sort of take the first look. If they can't figure it out, they send pictures to us and we say, hey, yeah, I think this is what it is. Or if it's even got to go deeper than that, I'll, I'll line up a visit and I'll say, hey, let me meet you out there, you know, with the uh, with the client and we'll, we'll see if we can figure it out. So there's a lot of, you know, different ways to figure it out these days. But certainly, you know, you're not going to know everything right off the bat. It takes a while. Yeah. So uh, are there are there plants that you grow in the greenhouse, you know, to literally to fruition? <laughs> Vegetation. Um, that's a made-up word, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have done tomatoes that way before in the, in the, in the darn heart of winter here. I, you know, I mean, it's Georgia, but like Texas, you know, we we don't exactly have thirty feet of snow, but you know how it is. It gets cold, and you know, we can go down to twenty degrees, you know, in, in the evening, and then you know, up to fifty or so in the day. But that's you know, tomatoes not going to make that. But in the greenhouse, we can trick them. So we have we've harvested tomatoes, you know, around Christmas time in January. Certainly can do that. We have grown lettuces before inside the greenhouse all the way to fruition, and they're very fast to grow. So that's not a problem. And, you know, commercially, we're seeing a little bit of an uptick on hydroponics you mentioned. Uh, there's also aquaponics. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Yeah, but it's so you have to- fish that, that's that, right. uh, that poop in the water, and then it goes to the plants. The plants clean it, and then it goes back to the fish. Exactly. Yeah. And normally, the fish of choice, I mean, I've seen catfish used, but usually it's tilapia, which... Oftentimes they're harvested, you know, for us to eat. You, know, you find them in the grocery store, but that's sort yeah. of taken off a little bit. So we're, we're getting a little bit more of that coming into the state. In fact, we're just hired sort of an environmental vegetable specialist that's going to kind of be working along that line because we're starting to see a little bit more interest in it. So if someone's growing, let's say just on their own in their yard, you know, obviously they can go to YouTube and different places to learn stuff, but if they want to hire a professional, what are some of the professionals out there? What are they called? Like, What's an agronomist versus a horticulturist versus a, an extension agent, like you mentioned? Yeah, you know, I, you know, that's a good question. I've never heard of anyone hiring like someone to grow a vegetable garden for them beyond, you know, a farmer working fields. You can certainly hire, you know, a landscaper, sort of a horticulturist to help you with your landscape things. You know, I think a, a homeowner who's really just completely, you know, at the, the beginning, they don't really have an idea what will grow so forth. They really need to check their local county extension office. There is so much information. It's free. There's tons of publications. There's online videos. We started to, you know, we're starting to do videos now ourselves. I've done a couple of um, YouTubes on stuff. There's so much information out there. But to answer kind of your question, I would tell people to focus, to start off with, on the EDU website. So the educational websites, which are going to be universities and so forth. It's not to say there's not a lot of, you know, good personal information or private, but at least with a university, you know, it's going to be research-based, non-biased. We're not selling a product or anything like that. So that's a good place to start. Then contact your local county agent. Um, They're paid for, you know, through your taxes, um, some through the county, some through the state tax. And they will literally, in, in most counties, will come out and make a field visit. They can sort of diagnose your site and say, hey, th- I think this would be a great place to grow this or not that. Um, so that's where I would, would start with. Uh, as far as you know, hiring a professional to come vegetable garden, I don't know I've ever heard of anyone doing that, or if it exists, it might be a good little niche thing for someone to start, but uh, you don't hear that very often. 
Yeah. Okay. I, I was just curious about that. Um, for yeah. people that uh, haven't grown before and they're, you know, they have trepidation, they want to just dip their toe in. What do you recommend that they do and don't do to get started? You know, what's something someone could do at home that's not too crazy, but uh, they can grow some stuff to eat. Yeah. So if I'm just going to give like the basic, and, and, and if we're talking like right now, this time of year, we're actually sort of, you know, beginning to terminate the summer garden. And believe it or not, it may be, you know, hot down by you and me, but we're, we're actually getting ready for the fall garden. So this is the time of year we're looking at the winter vegetables. And so I would start on a small scale. I really do like raised beds. I mentioned that earlier, even though there's a challenge of keeping them wet enough, they certainly do help in that the drainage is really good. Oftentimes you can put good sterile type soil in there that doesn't have a lot of weed seed or disease. So maybe look up raised bed gardening. We've got a publication, I'm sure I know Texas does as well, and, and, and look at possibly, you know, getting started on a small scale. Um, some really easy things that you can grow this fall. Lettuce is really simple to grow. You can direct seed it right into the garden. Doesn't have to be started as a transplant. Radishes are cool season. They're the easiest vegetable in the world to grow. They produce in 26 days, so they're really quick. Broccoli is another really easy winter vegetable to grow, in my opinion. You do want to either grow a transplant or purchase them. You know, you go to the, the big box stores or the or garden center, and you can find broccoli transplants by the time we get to late August or September. So there will be some easy things to start with. The herbs are also, we grow a lot of herbs here at my home. I've got a farm here at the house, and we grow herbs. So, um, you know, cool season. We, we love cilantro, so we're, that's a cool season herb. We've got that growing, parsley also grow garlic. So some of the herbs are real simple to grow and, you know, really good to have in your cooking. Come summertime, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you can grow fairly easy. Tomatoes are probably the hardest. I mean, they're simple to plant because you're going to buy a transplant or grow it, but they're going to have the most problems. Green beans are usually one of the simplest things for people to grow in the springtime. So green beans are real easy. Squash does have its problems with insects, but it's fairly bomb-proof at least to germinate and to get at least a few crops off of it before it gets hit with something. So peppers, in my opinion, transplanted peppers, much less problematic than tomatoes. Oftentimes peppers, in fact, I'm looking in my garden, peppers are going to make it all the way probably till Thanksgiving before they freeze out. So that's just a couple of things to get started with. Are there plants that you shouldn't grow near each other? Like um, I remember years ago, I had a grow tent and I grew tomatoes and a bunch of other stuff and I used flood and drain, but the tomatoes like took over they, they elbowed out everybody and they're, they just like literally completely took over everything because I was away for a, a little over a week. I was surprised how aggressive they are. Yeah. So, um, you know, you can go online and read books about companion planning and never grow this with this or that with that. It comes in, in my, my opinion, it's, it's less folktale and it's more scientific, scientific knowledge. What you want to do is, first of all, make sure plants are not going to compete with each other for sunlight. So be careful how you lay the plants out. Let's just say, for instance, you're growing sweet corn. Well, sweet corn, you know, can get six or seven foot tall. If it does that, is it going to be shading out your lower bean crop, perhaps, if you got some bush beans? So be cognizant of which way the sun's going. I like to run rows east and west when I can in the garden. I just feel I get maximum sunlight. Um, the other thing is there's benefits sometimes. If you, say, had a, um, you know, winter planting of peas. Well, peas are what we call a legume crop. A legume crop is a type of crop that produces its own nitrogen. Okay. It fixes it and it utilizes it. When that plant fizzles out in the spring and you till it in, boom, you could put sweet corn right behind it because corn is a heavy nitrogen user and it will benefit from some of that residual nitrogen that's in the soil. 
So it's things like that. And then knowing what the plant's going to do when it grows, how wide does it get? How tall does it get? Make sure, like you said, it's not in competition. You want to have plenty of spacing. And I would say, you know, if you're going to err on the side of anything, err on the side of spacing it too much rather than not enough. It's better to be spaced out more than to be crowded. Well, I've heard some people talk about cover crops. I mean, I guess this is for much bigger farming or, or mulch. Yep. Any opinion of yours on cover crops versus mulch, which is better? Yeah, so um, I'm a huge proponent of cover crops. And it's not just for small, I mean, for large farms. I think every homeowner out there ought to be using cover crops. Um, cover crops basically, to some extent, are a, a non-producing plant such as, and we use a lot of clover, wheat, oats, rye. Um, mix them together in, in an area of the garden, maybe that's not going to be planted this winter. We're going to let a part of it rest. Instead of just leaving it bare soil, plant a cover crop. All that green material will hold the soil, keep it from eroding. Eventually, as it breaks down in the springtime and you get ready to replant, all of that will contribute to organic matter. Versus if you use mulch on, and, and I mean, I'm a big proponent of mulch as well. I like to use mulch around the existing vegetables that are growing. So mulching around your tomato plants, around your squash, around your peppers to help hold in moisture and to block weeds, I think is a fantastic way to go. Okay. But in an area where you're going to have a lot of bare soil, because maybe you're not planting or you want to rest that part of the soil, the cover crops is going to be the way to go to allow that. We call it green manuring, if you will. That stuff's going to grow. It's going to put some nitrogen in the soil. And then eventually when it gets tilled back in, all that rich organic will be in your soil. How come you can't just let weeds grow in your garden and just clip them every once in a while? And they're, they're the cover crop. Uh, yeah, weeds are sort of nemesis. What's wrong with them? Yeah, weeds actually will provide, to some extent, when they're broken down, nutrients. The problem is they're, they're great nutrient robbers. And then if you let weeds overtake your garden, which is a tremendous problem, particularly in the southeast, but pretty much everywhere, the weeds are going to compete for moisture, for the nutrition that's been applied to the vegetables. And so if they get out of hand, you're going to have some really lethargic looking vegetables. So uh, there's a difference between planting a cover crop that you will terminate. And by terminate, I mean you're going to end that cover crop uh, either by fruition where it's fizzled out or you're going to spray it or you're going to till it in. And now you're going to plant your vegetable. And then that's when you switch to using non-living mulch around it. OK, pine straw, wheat straw, pine bark type stuff. Versus if you just try to grow into a bed of weeds saying, well, that'll hold the soil, whatever. No, it's going to rob the soil. So it's going to be too much of a competition factor, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I just wondered why. But okay. okay. Interesting. What are some of the, uh, I don't know, the big projects that you're working on? Are you trying to get new plants to be able to grow in Georgia soils? Or like, what's the focus of your work at it? Yeah. So um, right now we're working actually um, a lot of we do at UGA, and this is probably true of a lot of the academic institutions, they're always going to require you to try to bring in grants and so forth. And grants, you know, sort of a blessing and sort of a curse because they, they'll sort of make you run rabbits around the hole, if you know what I'm talking about. But at the end of the day, I'm on a grant right now that hopefully is going to come through and we're going to be working with pollinators. And so what we're going to be doing is trying to set up pollination demonstrations around small grower operations, you know, these like anywhere from maybe, you know, three to 10 acre sites where people are, they may be farming full-time or it could be a little part-time farm where they're trying to make a little extra money, but we're going to talk to them and hopefully show them um, the importance of pollinators, setting up colorful areas of attractor plants, ones that bring in lots of bees and other type pollinators 
that will benefit them by being there for their for their um, their vegetables. Also, we're looking to pull in what we call beneficial insects, predatory insects that are going to be a predator, you know, taking out the bad guys in the garden. So that's kind of the focus now. Um, hopefully that's going to be, you know, we're going to be gearing up for that starting this spring. Hmm. Okay. okay. Very good. If people are interested in learning more from you and, you know, getting resources, maybe from the University of Georgia or, you know, publications you've written or you mentioned a radio show, you know, what are some places people can find out more about you and learn from you? Yeah. So I think if I, probably the easiest way, you know, if they just go into Google and put from, from, again, depending on what state you're in, and I'm, I guess I'm thinking this could be going in any state. Is that correct? Yeah, all over the U.S., yep. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, certainly you want to do something that's in your state. You don't really want to too much be looking up the Georgia information if you live in Oregon or something like that because, you know, varieties, climatic zones, and all that's going to be different. So go to your university website. For UGA, we would say to go to – just go to UGA Extension Publications. If you Google that, the first hit you get, you'll see the the website there. When you click on that, you don't have a search engine. And on that search engine, whatever you're interested in, if you want to grow okra, just put growing okra or homegrown okra, and boom, you're going to find more than likely if it's going to be something like that. I wrote the publication on it, but there could be multiple other publications. That's a great way to start to get some reading material. We mentioned this several times, but check with your local county extension agent. Um, I teach a lot of gardening programs around the state, but I usually do them through the county offices. So the county agents will set up gardening workshops and then, you know, they'll call in appropriate speakers, myself being one of them, and then we'll come in and do a presentation. So there's a lot of presentations being done around the country through different extension services, you know, that might be available for the consumers to be able to take advantage of. So, you know, that would be another thing. And certainly, you know, there's, there's some private gardening clubs and, and there's some organizations out there. You know, we have Georgia Organics, which is not part of the UGA, but it's an organic organization that promotes organic gardening. Um, it exists, you know, nationwide in all the different states. So have to do a little searching maybe on our, our, on our internet tools, but they should be able to find plenty of information. Okay. Okay. Very, very good. Well, excellent. Robert, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your knowledge. I really appreciate it. Well, I enjoyed it. And it was, it was a lot of fun. Remember, before you go, to grab your one penny bag of pine pollen for all the amazing, all natural hormonal support that men and women the world over are raving about. Try it out and see how it works for you. All you have to do is head to geniuspollen.com to grab your bag today. Within days, you may be able to notice greater energy, more focus, added recovery, and more. Again, please visit geniuspollen.com to learn more now. Thank you. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.